0: I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Esther, Esther chapter 5, Esther chapter 5, and we're going to be looking um, at a passage that's very intriguing. I've I've titled it, He Prepared a Table. Um, Physically, it was Esther that prepared a table in the story that we're about to read, um, but it was most definitely the Lord that prepared this table. And so we're going to see how the Lord honors the faithfulness of His followers, because that's exactly what we're going to see in Esther. Um, and, and, and almost unprompted, Mordecai told her about the issue. She had just a little bit of a challenge, but remember what she said. She said, "Then I will go to the to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish." <clears throat> so what I believe is that Esther had challenge, or, or Mordecai had challenged Esther to be a defender of her people. And after a three-day fast, she's ready to take action. So that's what we're going to see. Now, I don't believe that Esther was depending on her good looks, her relationship with the king, or any other external factor. I believe she was depending on the Lord to to look favorably on her and to give her favor before the the king. Now, I believe that Christians today, we better know uh, what it's like to be surrounded by enemies. And we also know what it's like to have our faith tested. This is something that I want to mention. No, no this is something I want to preach. Whether you know it or not, you are surrounded by enemies. Those that seem to be in charge and helpful, those are enemies. Those that you think are completely um, just, just out there doing their own thing, those would be enemies as well. What we have to realize is that we are challenged in our faith to live according to God, depending on God. When we start to depend on things that might look like they are helpful, those become enemies to our spiritual life. Those become enemies to our faith, and they will weaken us. You can look at me in such a way as that I am your enemy. Because if you depend on me and trust in me and try to listen to me and and look to me for guidance, that's not the design, that's not the plan. I'm here to try to show you what the Word of God says, but ultimately you have to depend on God. You see, Esther wasn't waiting on Mordecai to go and do something so that the king would look favorably. She was hoping for God to go and do something. So when we look around as believers, we need to be sure that we are focused on God, depending on Him, placing our faith in anything else. You know, for so many years, I think preachers had to preach against trusting the almighty dollar. Well, it's not so mighty anymore, but don't trust that. Don't trust the government. Don't don't trust the things that that are structures and institutions in this world that give you strength. Don't trust those things. That strength is fleeting. That help is, is false. Ultimately, trust in God. That's what Esther, I think, was doing as she prepared to take the steps that we are going to see her take in just a minute. As we watch Esther's story unfold, I think we can be encouraged to remain faithful even in the midst of our enemies. This is the sermon in the sentence. Faithfulness to the Lord brings joy, even during trials, while the happiness of the wicked brings only disappointment. So, As we look at this story, there's some things that I just kind of want to to, to ask you to pay attention to. Pay attention to Esther, the things that she says, the things that she does. Um, Think along the lines of what would I do? What would I do if I was in Esther's shoes? How would I have handled these things? Um, Because Esther doesn't handle these things like I think a lot of us would want to handle these things. Um, When you have something that you've got to do and it's difficult, it's a challenging task, you want to get it out of the way. Well, Esther doesn't get it out of the way. She goes at a certain pace and a certain timing for everything, and I believe that she is guided by the wisdom of the Lord in this. But I also want you to look at Haman and and look at how he acts and how he responds. Unfortunately, I think we can see a lot of this day's modern world in Haman. We can look and we can see how the world rises with the good things and the pleasing circumstances and how it sinks when something doesn't go their way. And so let's look at those two people, see the differences between the way they live and the way they conduct themselves in this chapter. So it's Esther chapter 5. We're going to read well the entire chapter, but it's only 14 verses. On the third day, this is the third day after the fast, so Esther had asked for all of the people, the Jews in Susa, to fast. She had asked for her ladies to fast, the ladies that were were her servants. Um, She asked for everyone to fast, even though that was against the law. And so after the three-day fast, that's the third day after this fast, on the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace. In front of the king's quarters... "...while the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room opposite the entrance of the palace." It's a lot of description to let you know this is, this is the inmost part of the king's chambers. This is where the king does his king business. This is where people come to make supplications before the king. This is where the king makes his decisions. This is the king seated on his throne. This is the place that Esther was not allowed to go. And so it lets you see where she has went and where she has gone. Verse 2. And when, she, and when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight. And he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. And the king said to her, What is it, Queen Esther? <coughs> what is your request? It shall be given to you, even to the half of my kingdom. And Esther said, If it please the king, let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I have prepared for the king. Then the king said, Bring Haman quickly, so that we may do as Esther has asked. So the king and Haman came to the feast that Esther had prepared. And as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said to Esther, What is your wish? It shall be granted to you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. Then Esther answered, My wish and my request is, If I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it please the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come to the feast that I will prepare for them, and tomorrow I will do as the king has said. And And Haman went out that day, "...joyful and glad of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home. And he sent and brought his friends and his wife Zeresh. And Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons." all the promotions with which the king had honored him, and how he had advanced him above the officials and the servants of the king. Then Haman said, "'Even Queen Esther, let no one but me come with the king to the feast she prepared. And tomorrow also I am invited by her together with the king. Yet all this is worth nothing to me, so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate.'" Then his wife and all his friends said to him, Let a gallows fifty cubits high be made, and in the morning tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. This idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. How are you going to make that a happy story? Okay, so let's look at this. The first thing we're going to look at is the big risk, because that's exactly what Esther is doing. She is taking a very big risk as she steps out of the place where the women are supposed to stay and goes into the inner circle of the king himself. Many years before the events of this chapter, the servant of the Lord King David wrote about a table that the Lord would prepare in the presence of his enemies. I believe that table was in Esther's mind as she began to go through this. Why would you say the king is her enemy? The king is her husband. The king is the reason she's been elevated to the position she's in. The king is the reason that she has all of the fineries and royal robes to put on. The king is the reason that she is protected, that she has food to eat, that she could likely escape this whole disaster that's about to come to her whole people. Well, the king, one, is not God. The king, two... He is very unstable. He changes his mind constantly based on his advisors. And three, and probably the most importantly in this particular story, the king has the power of life and death over Esther. If she does something that does not please him... He can have her killed. He can have her exiled. He can have her treated any way that he wants to have her treated. So we have to understand that the king is her enemy. And obviously Haman is her enemy because Haman is the one who has come up with the plan to have all of the Jews killed because he was offended by one of the Jews. And so when we look at this, we see that Esther is about to get herself in a position where she is surrounded by her enemies, but yet there is a table there that God has prepared. The king knew that his needs... Uh, would not be met, and his fellowship with the Lord... This is still about David. The king knew that his needs would be met, and his fellowship with the Lord would be unbroken, even though he was surrounded and outnumbered. So think about David for a minute before we think about Esther. David was always, it seemed, on the run or in trouble or surrounded by enemies, and and yet he knew that God would provide for him. What we have to remember in our lives as well is that we are surrounded by enemies. The things that you think are good for you, those things will offer you things that you don't need. You might say, well, I, I, I have a good job and I like my boss. Well, your boss might ask you to do something or give you an opportunity even, thinking that they're helping you, but it's something that would take you further away from the Lord. We have to realize that we need to seek the Lord first before we do anything before we say anything look at Esther's example now Esther spent three days fasting and in prayer and asked all the Jews in the land to do the same thing before she made her decision and before she made her moves this is important and this is definitely something um, that we would need to, to to do So Esther certainly would have known a thing or two about being surrounded and outnumbered by her enemies. So as a woman in the Persian Empire, an independent action or any independent action she took would be a risk. Women were not supposed to be independent. They were not supposed to have minds of their own and and do things that they wanted to do. That was not part of the culture. So she is surrounded. Every man she's surrounded by is an enemy and a threat to her. As the queen Her entire life was on display and she could get in great trouble uh, just by uh, making a simple request at the wrong time, which is what she's about to do. So understand that when Esther walks toward the king, when she enters into this inner room that he has, she has put herself at great risk. Not risk of falling out of favor with the king, but ultimately life or death. That's where she's at. So after the three-day fast... That she had requested, Esther puts on all of her queenly glory and bravely approaches the unapproachable queen, king. Now, she would have, you know, after a fast, the, the, you don't always feel great. Um, not eating for three days, she may not have felt great, but she would have brought, put on the best finery that the king had provided for her. She would have went through all the the steps that that beauty required in those days. Now these are some of the great mysteries that men are not aware of. What happens from the time that a woman gets up off the couch and goes and gets ready and then presents herself prepared? What ha- These are mysteries that men don't know. But whatever it was, Esther went through that process and she turned the head of the king. Whatever she did, it was an amazing thing. So, This moment had to be one of the most intense moments in all of Esther's life as she stood waiting to learn whether she would live or die because that's exactly where she's standing. So she had put on all the finery, everything that she had, everything that she knew that she could do to change the king's mind. But was her faith in her beauty? It doesn't seem so. Was her faith in her clothes or the finery? It doesn't seem so. Now, she did all that she could do, but it didn't seem that that was where her faith was. Was her faith in the king? It doesn't seem so. It seems that her faith was in the Lord. As you read the very end of chapter 4, it seems like she figured she might die. She thought it was at least a 50 50 chance. And so it doesn't seem like she was trusting the king to look favorably on her. He hadn't called her even to see him in 30 days. It doesn't look like she was hoping in her beauty or in, in the robes or whatever it was that she had. She didn't seem to be looking for hope in the world. She seemed to be looking for hope in the Lord himself. So it had been over 30 days since the king had sent for Esther and maybe, maybe he had forgotten just how beautiful She really was. Maybe he was having a good day, and when he saw her, it made things get even better. Maybe he was having a bad day, but then when he saw her, he remembered how joyful he was. Whatever happened in his own mind, God worked it out to where he looked favorably upon the queen. God ordained this response. Now, this wasn't just a, hey, honey, how are you? But the king responds with, with the power of life and death, he responds by reaching out his royal scepter. Now, what that meant is that he had shown favor, like he had granted her the right to break the laws, to break the tradition, to go against what was supposed to be. Because remember, she was not supposed to approach him until he had requested her or summoned her. So, in this moment, when the king stretches out the scepter, the battle may not have been won, But Esther knows that she is favored not only by the king, but also by the Lord himself. God is blessing her work at that point, and she knows it. So she approaches the king and touches his scepter, and that's an act of humility. That's what she was supposed to do because of his acceptance. And the king is so delighted to see Esther that he is willing to give her anything she might ask up to half of the kingdom. So this is, this is not just say, hey, I'm glad that you're here. This is, you feel the need that I didn't even know I had, so you can have anything that you want up to half of the kingdom. Now... I actually read some things where people were trying to calculate what that value might have been. We have no idea the wealth of the Persian kingdom at this time because it was vast. It was the biggest empire the world had ever seen. They had things that they didn't even know the value of. They they had gold. They had They had, you know, obviously they had the Middle East, so they have all the oil that everybody was sitting on that nobody knew anything about at that time. They had all kinds of amazing power and wealth and the splendor to be able to throw a a a half-a-year party and to shut down the government and just let everybody celebrate for half a year, remember? That was in his third year and things had gotten better for Xerxes. So just how wealthy, just how powerful, just how much did he have? Now, the king was likely used to dealing with superficial people. Superficial women, superficial men, give them something. Give them something gold. Give them something of a precious jewel. Give them something and they're happy. Uh, so he likely believed that that Esther's request might be material in nature. Even though she probably hadn't spent a lot of time asking the king for gold and fineries and all those kinds of things. That's probably in his mind, you know, whatever she asked me. If she asked me for, you know, a, you know, a, a gold ring or diamonds or whatever, I'll give that to her. No problems, no questions asked. That probably was what was in his head. But Esther wants to charm the king and keep him waiting to reveal her real request. So what she asks is, come to this banquet. You and Haman, come to this banquet. She doesn't tell him what she really wants. The king knows that the request is not just to come to the banquet. She has something that she wants or she wouldn't have risked her life. She's not going to risk her life to invite him over for dinner. So he knows that there's something bigger going on here. But he's willing to play the game he's willing to pursue he's willing to wait so she invites the king and Haman to attend a banquet that she's prepared and her boldness Esther's boldness that's that's this is holy courage here or boldness is certainly an example for us as we face dangerous times but the real lesson is in the way that God directs these events without going into all of it i just want to remind you Esther was not queen before God ordained it God has put together this entire plan for this entire moment. Now, even Haman, even Haman, the reason that we're all here, because Haman wants to kill the Jews, even Haman is part of God's plan to show what God can overcome, what God can do. You know, you don't tell people what they can't do, because that's what challenges them and makes them just kind of keep going keep pushing a little bit more? Well, it was said that you can't break the laws of the Medes and the Persians. And over the next few weeks, as we study this passage, we're going to see that God can break that law. And any other law that mankind can put up. Anything that mankind can do, anything that mankind can say, hey, this is the thing that's impossible. This is the thing that can't be done. This is the thing that's going to be the end of us. This is whatever. God can break that. God can fix it. God can We have to be faithful. We have to be faithful. And remember what Mordecai said. Mordecai told Esther, God's going to deliver us, whether you're part of it or not. And I believe the same is true for us today. God is going to accomplish his will. He's going to have his plan come to pass. And we can be a part of it or we cannot be a part of it. But it is a choice that we must make. So God blessed the faithfulness of Esther by making the king abundantly favorable to her. Is the king still dangerous? Is the king still an enemy? Yes, he he's still dangerous to her. He could still take her life, he could still reject when he, she actually asks, makes her full, full request. There's any number of things that could happen. But God has made her favorable in this moment, in this time. When we look at the history of the Jews, for example, we see a whole bunch of examples of them being receiving and getting favorable treatment. There's also a whole bunch of examples of them not getting that favorable treatment. But when we especially look in the ancient times, God made sure that they received favor. Now here we are as a group of Christians so many years later. Do we receive favorable treatment? Some would say yes, some would say no. What I will tell you is that if we are faithful to God, He will absolutely be faithful to us. Now, our circumstances will be vastly different than that that Esther was facing. But God will give us favor with the right people when we are faithfully seeking to obey His will. That won't necessarily make them Christian. Xerxes didn't become a Christian or a follower of God over this, but he was used by God to spread God's favor among His people. So now let's look at this banquet, the first banquet. It starts, um, you know, as, as we get into it, it starts basically in uh, verse 5, um, where the king orders to bring Haman um, very, very quickly to, to get to Esther's banquet, the one that she has requested for him to attend. So the king was glad to bring his newly promoted official along with him uh, to this banquet. Whatever Haman did, some kind of advisory role, we don't know exactly what his true job was, but the king depended on Haman and, and spent time with Haman. And, and remember, they sit back and enjoy a strong drink while they talk about the fact that the Jews are all going to be killed. So they were friends, they were close, they worked together, and the king was ready to bring him along. But it seems his real eagerness was to remain in Esther's presence. Hey, get him here quick so that we can go and be with Esther even more. It wasn't a love potion. It was the power of God. So it seems that, the, that in the Persian Empire, any conversation worth having was also worth delaying. Um, you, you learn a lot from people by watching them eat. Um, some people go for the best thing first. The thing that they love first, they, they go for that right away. Other people work around that thing that they love. They, they, they eat all the things that they don't love so much so that they can save and, and enjoy the thing that they like. Well, this Persian conversation, the conversation between the king and Esther here is like that. They have their banquet. They have their their Haman. They have all these things going on, but they don't have the conversation just yet. And so the feast is over. They're sitting back drinking wine. And the king brings up the question again they enjoy this feast they don't talk about whatever it is that Esther is requesting and you know the king is enjoying uh, the presence of Esther Haman is enjoy basking in the glory that he's the only one that got invited to this party besides the king himself so he's definitely you know sitting in, in, a, in a great spot for himself after the feast over a cup of wine the king repeats his offer to give Esther anything up to half of his kingdom now This table that they're sitting at, physically, yes, Esther probably put this thing together. Well, not she probably told people to do it because she was a queen. Uh, But we know that really the person that prepared this table was God himself. Esther was there. Esther was by the king that had given his signet ring to Haman. And Haman had used that signet ring to sign the death warrants of all the Jews. She was surrounded by enemies. But that was her table that the Lord himself had made. So the king could take her life. Haman wanted to take her life. He just didn't know that she was a Jew. Esther, in an act that can only be understood as divinely granted wisdom, stalls even more. She makes the king wait even more, come to another banquet the following day. Now, why did she do this? This is one of the things when, when I ask you to read and think about what, what would you do. So maybe the banquet, maybe the banquet would have been a good idea. Make the king happy, give him food, give him wine, make him happy, and then make your request. But that's not what Esther did. Esther received favor from the king. He extends the scepter. Then she invites him to a banquet. And when he's pleased and happy and everything's going well, she still will not ask the question. She waits another day now as we see the events unfold we understand what's going to happen and if you haven't read ahead to chapter six then, then you don't know all that's going to happen yet but but i'm telling you god had a plan and it is good that she waited one more day she didn't know what haman was going to go home and do she didn't know what the king was going to do when he couldn't sleep that night she didn't know any of the things that were going to happen but yet it happened and it was God's plan, and it was God's work, and it was God's will. So she is patient when it doesn't even seem like she should be patient. So, the only other guest, obviously, is Haman. And she's used this, this courage. She's received divine favor. Uh, and many of us, I think, would be ready to kind of kind of push the bubble here, to go ahead and ask the question, But she's willing to wait on the Lord's leadership and make her request known. So God had directed every event, every step of this event, up till now. It was not time for for Esther to rush it, to become foolish, to go outside of God's plan. How hard is it for us to wait on the Lord? How difficult is, is it for us when we think, okay, so finally, if you've been praying, if you've been longing, if you've been waiting, finally, here comes the resolution. How hard is it for us to... To wait on the Lord but that's exactly what Esther had to do and that's exactly what we must do so we must be courageous what do I mean when I say courageous well what did Esther have to do Esther had to go before the king and ask for the lives of her people what do we have to do we have to go to the people and tell them about Jesus okay so is that going to require that we be courageous in a different way absolutely and over time, it will become more and more difficult. So what do we have to do? We have to know when the right time is. If you have witnessed to people in the past, if you've shared your testimony, if you've told people about the Lord, if you've done things that, that, that have been, tried to lead people to the Lord, you know that there is a time for it. And there is a time to continue that conversation later, like Esther did. And so we have to be patient. We can't push because ultimately the convincing is done by the lord himself so we have to be courageous but we also have to be patient as we wait for the lord's perfect timing so we're going to look at haman for just a few minutes to kind of close out we're going to look at the folly of happiness now just to kind of open up this this conversation just to kind of say this there is a difference between happiness and And joy. Happiness is mostly based on our circumstances. Joy is based on something much deeper. So Haman is happy because of all the good circumstances in his life. Remember, he's been elevated, he's been promoted, and now even Esther has invited him to an exclusive dinner party. So he's walking along, probably whistling a tune, thinking things are great. He's favored by the king. Esther loves him, but his happiness is short lived. Because he sees Mordecai, and once again, Mordecai the Jew, as they refer to him, refuses to bow or show him reverence. So Mordecai doesn't stand up and say, all hail Haman. And he doesn't bow down, he doesn't tremble, he doesn't, he doesn't show any kind of reverence for Haman at all. And so that really gets under Haman's skin. He, he just flies off in a rage, and he really wants to, to, um, to, to show just how much he hates Mordecai in that moment by having him killed. Um, but because Haman's happiness is based completely on his circumstances, it's fleeting. He he loses everything, and he is all of a sudden once again unhappy. So we must have the wisdom to realize that our circumstances will always be changing, and that only joy can come from the Lord. You know, a year ago, actually this week is anniversary. A year ago, we bought an old house and it needed a lot of work, and we have worked a lot in it. And you know the really fun thing about an old house is there's always something new that's going to break, and something old that's going to break, and all the things in between are going to break. And so you can fix everything you want to fix, and you sit down, and, and if your happiness is based on everything in your house working at any given time, and you live in an old house, you're not going to be a happy person. You can be a happy person for a minute, and then something else is going to break. And, and, and for us, you know, one of the great joys of, of, of having a pet dog is that if everything seems to be fixed, she's going to choose something apart that needs to stay together. Um, You cannot let your happiness be based on circumstances. We have to find something deeper. Now, Haman, he wanted to kill Mordecai. He wanted to act immediately, but instead he restrains himself. It says, nevertheless, he goes home, he calls his friends and his wife together for his own little dinner party. This would have been a really fun affair. What does he do? He tells them how rich he is. He tells his wife how many sons he has. How'd that go over? (laughs) He talks about all the promotions that he's had. Oh, the king just loves me. Esther has brought me to this banquet that nobody else got to go to. Can you imagine having to sit through that? That would have been great. To sit there and listen to this man brag about himself. And then... Although there's only one king in this story, I believe that Haman is a drama king. And then, it's all worthless. As long as Mordecai the Jew stands there and doesn't bow to me, and doesn't worship me, and doesn't give me the respect that I actually deserve. You know, we should, we should take note of Mordecai's attitude here. We really should. Um, because it's at this point that it's helpful for us to understand that no amount of success can lead to real joy. Haman did have everything. He was wealthy. He had amazing promotions. He doesn't say how many sons he had, but he obviously had a bunch of sons. He had everything that this world tells you you're supposed to have. But he didn't have joy. It could be taken away in a heartbeat just because of what someone else does. Because of what someone else doesn't do. We have to realize that happiness is always going to be fleeting. It is always going to be taken away in a moment. But joy, joy is what we must seek. Now, Mordecai, I mean, now Haman himself, he remains unhappy. He remains pouty, or however you want to say it, until his wife suggests, well, why don't you just build a really big gallows and have the king kill Mordecai? And all of a sudden, he's happy again. Can y'all, can y'all see a toddler in all of this? A toddler pitching a fit about something, you know, why can't I get a handful of air or something, some things that they try to do sometimes. And and you have to say, well, here, why don't you just have this sneakers and be happy with it? And he says, okay, I'm happy. I'll just do that. So he goes and he has this gallows built. Now, the description of the gallows, it says 50 cubits high. A cubit is roughly 18 inches. That means that this gallows was going to be 75 feet high. Was it really 75 feet high? People debate and they ask the question, but it definitely gets the point across. Um, There was this old, um, well, it's probably not old to some folks, but there was a western called Hang Him High. This definitely kind of fits that pattern there of hanging him high. That was the whole point. It was, let everybody see what happens to somebody that will not bow to the mighty Haman. In Haman's mind, and I do believe he was deluded, to be totally honest with you, but in his mind he believed That if he went to the king and said, this man didn't bow to me, you need to kill him, the king was just going to let it happen. And from what we've seen from Xerxes, it may happen. It may be that way. But you have to look at just how petty and and how small-minded Haman really is. We have to look at this. And then we have to look in the mirror and be sure we're not Haman. We have to be sure that we are not this man that we are not this man, that everything in the world can be going right for us, and one thing doesn't work, and all of a sudden we're down in the dumps, and we're feeling sorry for ourselves, and somebody's got to die. Because that's exactly where Haman was. He, He knew that for him, everything would be terrible until Mordecai was dead. And so his wife gives him the one suggestion that he really needed to have. Haman wanted to see Mordecai dead. So, he believes he can just go to the king in the morning, have Mordecai executed, and then go to the banquet, the second banquet of the, of the queen. And he believes that this has nothing to do, one has nothing to do with the other. Now, his foolishness really needs to be an example for us. He wants what he cannot have, he plots against God's people, and only finds joy in worldly things. Now, in that list, hopefully, there's at least one of those that doesn't work for us, plots against God's people. But do we sometimes want things that we can't have? Do we sometimes only find joy and happiness in the worldly things? That's why I'm telling you, you are surrounded by enemies. I'm not telling you that I'm going to do anything to harm you. And most of the people around you are not going to try their best to harm you. Hopefully there's not that many Hamans walking around the world that's going to see you do something and try to kill you for it. But all of those things are dangerous. All of those things are our enemies. Because if it can give happiness, it can take happiness away. It can make us sorrowful. And God's people are not meant to be sorrowful. We are supposed to rejoice in Him, not weep over the lost and broken things of the world. That's not what we're supposed to do. You know, if you look at your bank account one day and it makes you happy, there will be a bill coming and then you'll look at your bank account and it won't make you happy. You can't worry about those things. If you look at your house today and everything is right, and a storm blows through in the night, and then the yard is ruined, you can't let that be the only source of joy and happiness that you have in life. We cannot use Haman as a good example. He must be a bad example, an example of foolishness. You know, I believe that there's a chance that we're going to have an opportunity very soon to be faithful to the Lord in a hostile environment. Let me tell you that the institutions, the powers that be that are Christian, many, many of them have been compromised. Many of those things that are supposed to be the the lights, the, the leaders, those things out there, those have become compromised. Esther didn't have a organized religion at that particular point to stand up for her. She didn't have a high priest or a prophet. She didn't have anything that she could point to and say, you know, look, here's this organization that says I'm right also. She didn't have any of those things. She was alone. Because Mordecai couldn't gain an audience with the king. The Jews, all they could do was mourn. But God could stand for her. And what I'm suggesting to you is that even though it seems like we live in a Christian nation, many of the Christians themselves have become compromised. They have become dazzled by the joys and the splendor of this world, and their eyes are not on the Lord. But they are more like Haman, looking at the circumstances, looking at the physical, material things of this world, and saying that's what ultimately matters. It's not. And when we get caught up in those things, we lose. We do not please God. We do not serve Him because we're not motivated to serve Him. If the only thing that matters to you is the Lord, then you will work toward Him. But if there are other things that give you happiness and make you feel good, that's what you'll go after. We must focus on the Lord and Him alone. We must trust Him, obey Him, And wait for Him to lead us to the table that He has prepared for us in the presence of our enemies. And so church, this morning there's a couple of things that I want to challenge you to do. One, make sure your salvation. Make absolutely certain of your salvation. Know that you trust God and trust Him alone. There's no other way. There's no other way that we will survive. Why did Jesus get so angry when He mentioned the lukewarm Christians at Laodicea? He said, you're neither hot nor cold, I will spew you out of my mouth. I'm not going to translate that any further for you, but it's not good. The reality is, lukewarm Christianity is deadly Christianity. I believe that lukewarm Christians can love the things of God, and they can love the things of the world. And so they, back and forth, back and forth. We're happy, we're sad. Make sure your salvation... Let me say it another way. I don't believe Jesus saves anybody to lukewarmness. I believe he saves us to be like him. He saves us to become his. We don't give a part. We must give all because he gave all. So that's the first challenge. Make sure your salvation, make sure you are trusting the Lord Jesus Christ. Turn away from your old life, turn away from your sin, make sure you're trusting in him. Now, the second thing that I want to challenge you to do is to figure out where God wants to use you. Now, it could take you years. By some estimating, Esther may have been queen for 7 to 12 years before she went into the king's inner room that day and was able to reach out and touch his scepter. So maybe she didn't know for a long time why God had her where she had her. But she was going to be faithful until she knew. And that's what I challenge you to do. How is God going to use you? God's retirement plan starts in heaven, not on earth. So no matter how old you are, no matter what we have done, He is not finished with you. He has you here for a reason. What is God going to do? And then third, the third thing I'll challenge you with is, is, is stop looking at the world and what it has. Because there are bad things that all it's going to do is get you down, and I believe that's an enemy for us. There are good things that might get you excited, but that is also an enemy for us. Look to the Lord. Look to Him for the joy, for the satisfaction. Look to Him. Let Him lead you and guide you, and then we will be faithful. I'm not telling you to be Esther, but I am telling you to be like Jesus. And Esther was a lot like Jesus. She was sent for a time, for a purpose, for the deliverance of her people. And Jesus himself was sent for a time and for a purpose and for the deliverance of all people. So let us be faithful to God. Let us trust him. Make sure your salvation. Find out what he's got you here for. And let's get our eyes off the world and our eyes on Jesus Christ. Let's have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for this time to gather together. I thank you for your word which guides us. The example this morning of Esther being brave and willing to stand in front of the king when she was not invited. Lord, we as Christians trying to share the gospel are definitely going to understand what it feels like to be uninvited to things. And so I pray that you would help us to begin to be used to that used to not being invited, used to not being popular, used to not being the ones that everybody looks up to. Because the reality is, as we continue to proclaim righteousness, as we continue to order people to repent, as we continue to talk about heaven, this world is going to continue to talk about worldly things and they're going to hate our message. But I pray that you would help us to be faithful to that. Make us strong. Make us true. Help us to be unswayed by the worldly things that are out there. Whether they be good, whether they be bad, whether they be lasting or whether they be temporary, we must be unswayed. Let us put our hearts and our minds on You. Lord, I know that that will not happen all at one time and I know it won't be easy, but I ask for Your strength. And I know that You will always give Your strength to Your people. So I pray that we make sure our salvation. Let us make sure our salvation. Let us be faithful to You. Show us the purpose that you have for us, and then let us be faithful to fulfill that. We know that you are going to share and spread the gospel with or without us. Lord, this morning, I pray that each of us in our hearts chooses to be with you and not against you. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen.